Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today we are going to talk about lines. We'll talk about peripheral IVs, we'll talk about A-lines, central lines, and PA catheters. Now, there's a lot out there on the specifics of how to prepare, what equipment you'll need, and I'm not going to go over all of that. I will recommend some fantastic videos that the New England Journal has put out, uh, and they are there are four of them, one for each of those, peripheral IVs, arterial lines, central lines, and PA catheters. Uh, you can find them if you go to uh, if you just Google, uh, for example, peripheral IV placement, New England Journal, or NEJM, and the first link that comes up, or one of the first links on Google, should be the New England Journal video. They are uh, they're fantastic. I'll also put the links in the show notes on the website, which is acrac.com, accrac.com. Remember, you can go to the website where you can download all the episodes including the first five, which for some reason don't seem to be appearing on the podcast link on iTunes for some reason. Still haven't figured that one out. And you can leave comments on the episodes. If you have something you disagree with, something that you have a question on, post it there, post it on the website so that other people can see and respond as well. You can sign up for our mailing list in the upper right part of the website. On the home screen, there is a link, and you can then get notifications when a new episode is out, and at some point I may send around other interesting material as well. And, of course, if you have questions or comments for me directly that you don't want to post on the website, you can email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C dot com. Today's topic on lines and tips and tricks on how to place them comes uh, from a request from Alex Gorman. Alex, uh, hopefully you'll find this helpful. And certainly for everyone else out there, if you have other ideas, things you'd like to see on the show, let me know. Either post them as comments on the website or shoot me an email, and I'll do my best to try to arrange an episode for what you're looking for. Keeping in the tradition of recommending podcasts on my podcast, I really enjoy some of the Slate podcasts, uh, especially the Political Gab Fest. They uh, do a really nice job. They talk about current issues in politics and in society. And essentially what it is is a group of usually three, sometimes they have a guest, really smart people sitting around and talking about whatever issues that they've chosen to talk about. I find it fascinating. I think they do a really good job of covering the topics, and I think it's worth listening to. One of the things they talked about recently was whether there's an obligation to vote and what the ethics of voting or not voting are. Some other countries actually have fines for not voting. Australia is one, for example. Obviously, we don't in our country. But one reason they brought up that people may not vote is if they live in a state, at least they might not vote in a presidential election, if they live in a state where the conclusion is foregone, where there's not really a contest. It's either a very liberal Democratic state or a very conservative Republican state, and and that is not up for grabs in terms of the presidential election. And I understand the feeling of why vote if you don't think your vote will matter. But it's not just about who wins. It's also about the size of the majority in a given state and what that says about people's feelings on a candidate and the mandate for the candidate who does win. And it is really important. It's also important, I think, just as being a member of society, playing a role. If you have children, I think taking them and showing them that this is the way a democracy works. I think there's a lot to be said for that and worth doing worth taking that time especially in states like maryland where i live right now you have a variety of early voting days you have about a week before the election when you can go and vote in fact let me look the 
early voting. I have it right here. The early voting days in Maryland are October 27th to November 3rd. So any day from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. during that time, you can go vote. And then, of course, there is a five-day break before actual election day on November 8th. But that makes it much more tolerable if you have a schedule that makes it difficult for you to make it right on election day. So I urge you to go out and vote and exercise your civic duty. All right. Let's move on to talk about lines. So as I said, these New England Journal videos really do a good job of a lot of the details. What I'm going to mostly do is talk to you about kind of how I do it, what I think the best techniques are, and some tips and tricks for trying to work on your your skills and improve. Let's start with peripheral IVs. So the standard way, of course, is to do this without ultrasound. So let me go through that first, and then I will go back and tell you what I think uh, the advantage is and how to use ultrasound for peripheral IVs. But you certainly don't need ultrasound if someone has large and and clearly seen veins uh, on their hand or arm when you're placing an IV, or leg for that matter, leg, foot, wherever it may be. So what you're going to do is put on a tourniquet, and it makes a lot of sense to put the tourniquet on to identify the vein. Obviously, that will help veins pop up and become more visible. One of the, the most key parts, once you've identified a vein and you've cleaned off the area and you have all your equipment ready... First of all, you have to position the patient well. Positioning, and you've heard me say this before, is really crucial for any procedure that you're going to do, whether it's intubation, line placement, anything. Have your patient's arm at a comfortable height for you, assuming you're putting the IV in the arm. Make sure that it's you can stand in a place where you're comfortable, you're not crouched over, you have good access to the vein. And if you have to move things around or put the patient's arm on a table, obviously nice to have some padding underneath it, then do it because it's really important and it will maximize your chances of success. The next thing that's crucial is that once you're ready to go, you have to get the skin really taut around that vein. And this is a place I see, for example, medical students make mistakes all the time where they just aren't getting that skin taut enough and they go in and everything's rolling around. You're just going to have a hard time being successful. Now on the hand... It's pretty easy because you can bend the fingers down, and as you bend the fingers down and pull the skin with it, that will create, that will make the skin on the top of the hand very taut, and it's much easier to place an IV that way. However, in other places, it's hard because if you use your thumb to retract the skin, then your thumb is in your way, and it forces you to go at a steeper angle than you might otherwise want to. And so, one technique that I was actually shown by a nurse when I was an intern that this I use all the time if I'm doing an IV on the, on the forearm or elsewhere is to r- grab the skin under the arm. So imagine if you're putting an IV on the top of the forearm and you're going to grab on the bottom of the forearm and pull the skin from the bottom so that it makes the skin on top taut. Now, sometimes that will cause the vein to collapse. And you can adjust the amount of pressure that you're putting on that skin underneath until you get some collapses okay because it will help anchor that vein. But obviously you can't have it completely collapse. But if you practice that technique, you'll see it allows you – you have no obstruction in your field where you're placing the IV because your other hand creating the tension is under the arm. It's a really nice technique and you can play around with it. All right. So you'll see a lot of sources say to go in to enter the skin at at a 30-degree angle, and I completely disagree. I think that's much too steep. Peripheral IVs are, at least shallow ones if you're not going for some deep brachial, are really quite shallow, and it's really easy to go through and through. And once you go through and through a vein, you're pretty much done. It's not like an artery where you can salvage that sometimes. If you go through and through a vein, the vein's going to blow. So what you want to do is go in as flat as possible. And and this is the technique, the constantly tenting technique is what I teach my my residents and med students. You want to go in, enter the skin, and then as soon as your needle tip is in the skin, tent up the skin. In other words, lift, lift the skin as if you're trying to lift just the the epidermis. And then you go in another half millimeter and then tent that up and then another half millimeter and tent that up so that you're you're constantly lifting the skin and flattening your needle out more because to lift the skin you have to flatten the needle so you're going in almost at a zero degree angle and as you enter you're tenting and enter and tenting in other words you're walking right on top of that vein and then once your needle is in 
if you feel like you're on, you may be in, you may get in the vein this way, but if you don't, then you can angle just a little bit more down and try to get into the vein. And as soon as you do, as soon as you get blood flow back, then tent up from inside. Now you're inside the vein, tent up again and advance. That way you're going to advance along the length of the vein and not advance right through it. So doing this will allow you to save some veins that you would have gone right through. Is it possible that you'll find you aren't getting in the vein, that you're just stuck on top? Absolutely. But there's no harm in being stuck on top of a vein. You haven't lost anything. You can always angle down. But if you start angled down and you go through and through, you're done. You can't undo that blowing of the vein. So constantly tenting is the technique I recommend. All right. Once you get blood, again, tent up and advance everything Again, a huge, huge mistake that people doing this for the first time or who are, who are inexperienced at this do is they get blood, they stop, and they try to advance the catheter into the vein. Will that work sometimes? Absolutely. But there are also plenty of times where it won't advance, and it's because the tip of the needle can be in the vein, and so you're getting blood back. But the catheter doesn't sit right at the tip of the needle. The catheter sits a little ways back, and so the catheter may be outside the vein. And then when you try to advance the catheter, it's just going to bang up against the outside of the vein. So once you get that blood, flatten out, tent up, and then advance another couple millimeters into the vein. Now you know that your catheter is in the vein, and now you can thread your catheter off. This difference between the point of the needle and the catheter is more significant the higher the gauge of the needle. So if you're using a 22 gauge, there's very little distance and you don't have to advance much. But if you're using a 16 or 14 gauge, there's quite a lot of space between the tip of the needle and where your catheter sits. And so you need to advance quite a lot before you try to thread your catheter in. Of course, once you're done, don't forget to take your tourniquet off. A common early mistake in, in people who are getting started with this is they're so excited to get the IV in that they forget to take the tourniquet off the arm. So you definitely want to remember to do that unless you need to get blood for cultures or for whatever. And in that case, leave the tourniquet on while you draw the blood and then take the tourniquet off. All right. So what kind of trouble can you get in and how do you deal with it with peripheral IVs? Probably the most common thing is that you don't get in the vein. You've, you've gone in, you've gone at where you think the vein is, and you don't get any blood at all. In that case, obviously, you need to pull back. And, and you, don't, you want to really pull back to not out of the skin, but just, just to the entrance to the skin, and then redirect whichever way you think the vein is. And then you're going to try again. Now, another thing that happens not infrequently is you get some blood, but it doesn't continue to flow back. So you look at some point, you look down, you see, oh, there's some blood in my chamber, but it's not continuing to flow. So the most common thing here is that you've gone through and through. You can try pulling back on your catheter to see if you get blood flow again. You can try taking the needle out and just pulling the catheter back and see if blood comes out. Sometimes, occasionally, this might work. And if it does, you can either try threading a wire through and hope that wire goes down into the vein and then thread your catheter over the wire. Or you can try to, quote, float it in. You'll hear that I'm going to try to float it in. In other words, hook a syringe of saline up to the end of your catheter and inject saline while you advance, hoping that it opens up the vein and you can float it right into the vein. I'm not saying that this never works, either of these techniques. They certainly, the wire technique works much better with, with arterial lines. But with peripheral IVs and veins, it's really unlikely. If you have gone through and through, even if you pull your catheter back and start to get some blood dripping out, the chances are that's hematoma blood. It's coming from where the blood is leaking out into the tissue and not from the vein itself. You can try it, but again, I, most of the time you're going to find that this is not working. And if you start to see a hematoma form, if the skin starts to bulge up either from blood or if you try to inject saline and you see it bulge up in the skin around where the, where the catheter is, it's done. You can't save it at that point. Take your tourniquet off and apply pressure. And if you have the other arm would be a great place to go because you don't have to worry about that hematoma. If you can't use the other arm, then you can apply pressure for a little while, put a pressure dressing over it, and then go again. Another technique that can be useful is that if you put your uh, catheter in and it doesn't go, you try to thread it and it doesn't, it doesn't go. There's no blood coming back. And you want to try again on that same arm. Leave that catheter in the patient. Leave it in the arm for right now while you try again because it's going to stop the blood from coming back. It's obviously somehow tamponading that vessel. You're probably through and through and it's and the catheter itself is blocking blood from getting out of that vein. And so if you leave it 
as long as blood isn't coming back. If you leave it and you try another place, you don't have to worry about a lot of blood seeping out of that hole you've made in the skin and vein while you work somewhere else on the arm. Then when you've got another IV in somewhere else on that arm, come back, take out the catheter that you went, that you missed with and put a pressure dressing on there. If you get in and it is flowing and you think you're in the vein, but the flow isn't great, or let's say you have to maneuver it a little, it's what people call a positional IV. You have to pull back on it usually is what happens a little bit, and then it flows really well. It could be that it's up against a valve. The tip of your catheter is up against a valve. If you pull back a little and the flow is great and there's no hematoma or, or seroma forming, then it's reasonable to think that you may be in, and you can use the IV that way. But I wouldn't trust it for anything really important like major pressors or for very long. If it's positional, there's just a chance that it's, something's not right and you really don't want to be relying for a long case or for a long time or for any kind of powerful medications on an IV that's just a little iffy. It's worth taking the time to place another one. Another thing that can happen is the IV is really painful to the patient. Now, I don't mean the initial puncture of the skin if you haven't used lidocaine then that is going to hurt. But after that, once you get your catheter in, it shouldn't be painful. If it continues to be really painful, that's not a good sign. And probably both for the patient, but also just to be feel good about your IV, it's worth taking that out and doing another. This is clearly important in places like OB where the patient is going to be awake and have to feel that pain if it is painful. Uh, but even if you're going to be putting them to sleep in the operating room, you still don't really want – there's a reason that that was really painful. Maybe something's extravasating a little bit. It's just really not worth having an IV you don't feel good about. Finally, the intern vein you may be familiar with. It's the vein that kind of comes together if you follow the thumb up to the forearm, kind of along the – lateral edge of the forearm there. There is a, a nice, usually pretty big vein on a lot of people that's big and kind of easy to see and so therefore called the intern vein, meaning easy for novices to get. But that's actually a misnomer. It's actually a pretty tough vein a lot of the time because it's really mobile. It rolls really easily. And so what happens a lot of the time is you go in I and mean, you're looking right at this big juicy vein. It's not hard to see and you're going right at it and you get a blood flash but when you try to advance your catheter, you, it doesn't work. You get no blood back. And it's usually because what's happened is you've nicked the side. You've gone through a little bit of vein and then back out the side because it rolled. And so now you've put a hole in the side of the vein and it's going to be uh, going to form a hematoma and you're not going to be able to get it. So in th with that vein, if you're going for it, really tenting that skin is crucial. And you have to do it, or at least I think the best way to do it is by getting underneath that arm and and really tenting that skin, really pulling that skin under the arm so that it's taut on top of the arm where you want to go to try to get your IV in. All right, let's say you want to use ultrasound for peripheral IV. Now, this is a great technique. I use it a lot, uh, usually because by the time somebody comes to get me to put in a peripheral IV, a lot of people have tried and not been able to get it, meaning either there aren't any obvious veins or they're they're pretty deep. And so if this is the case, so for example, often you'll, you can find uh, veins in someone with, who's a little overweight in their AC. There aren't any obvious AC veins, but if you look with the ultrasound, you can find almost everyone will have a reasonably sized brachial vein, though that one is usually right next to the brachial artery. Uh, and then there will usually be some other veins that you can identify in the forearm or in the AC. So you can use the ultrasound, and you can do it one of two ways. You can either identify the vein, kind of make a mark on the skin, and then put the ultrasound down. Or my preference is to do it in real time. And I always do this, unless for some reason it won't fit, in, in, in long section. So what I do is I come in with the ultrasound axially in the cross section to find the vein. And once I find it, I put it right in the middle of my probe, and then I rotate my probe 90 degrees. And I'm looking on the screen to see a black tube all the way across the screen, that long section of the vein. This also really helps you because veins don't necessarily run straight up and down the arm. And so you are going to have to rotate your, uh, your ultrasound to find the direction that the vein goes. And if you're doing it in cross-section, all you're going to see is that round vein. You don't know if it immediately takes a bend one way and you go in right there. You can easily just go through the vein because it turns and your needle's going straight. So if you use the inline technique, you can actually see the whole – you get it so it's the whole length of your screen. And now you know which direction it's heading. And so 
Again, the key with this is really taking your time. I will admit it's harder. It's harder to do inline than it is to do cross-section in terms of coordinating your hand, your probe, and your eyes looking at both your IV and up at the screen. But it's worth practicing this because if you get it down, I think it's a much better way and a more reliable way to, to place these IVs. What you want to do is once you're in line, move the probe slowly till you get the, the exact, the best view. So you may get one view where the vein looks a little, it's black, but with a little gray, you're probably seeing a little wall and you move it over just a tiny bit. And now you see uh, the, just a black tube and then you move over a little more and you see a gray tube, a little bit of gray in there. So again, you want to get that best view and then hold it right there. The key here is the needle has to go in the same direction as your probe. So if you just enter at the start of the probe, but your needle is going off to the left or right and not right along the plane of the probe, then you're not going to be successful. You want to be able to see the whole length of your needle and the whole length of the catheter. And so what will happen is that you will go in often and you'll see, you'll have your vein in view, but you won't see your needle. So then what you need to do is stop advancing your needle and scan back and forth, left and right a little, until you see your needle. And then once you see your needle, you have to ask yourself, which way did I go to get to this view? Did I go to the right from my vein? If I did, I know my vein is back left. And so what I need to do is come out with my needle to either all the way out or out to the skin and either enter the skin a little more to the left or angle a little more left, depending on how far it is. And then go again until you get a view where your whole needle and your whole vein are both in view. Usually it's shallower than you think. So start shallow when you see your needle. If it's, you'll see it. That's the nice part about this. You'll see the whole needle. So you'll know, is this too shallow? Am I just dissecting out the epidermis? Do I need to angle more, more deep or am I in good position? So start shallow, find your needle Get that view where you see the needle and the vein. Don't be afraid to come all the way out and, and re-enter somewhere better. Also, you have to make sure your probe is straight up and down. If your probe is angled left or right, you're not going to be getting the view that you need. You're not going to be able to line up your needle and your probe. So probe has to be straight up and down. Needle has to go along the path of the probe. Take your time and get the view where you see your vein in long, section, long axis and you see your needle the entire thing. And then if you're not, move your needle until you get, move your probe until you find your needle, and then move your needle to the right place to get back to your vein. Sometimes you'll see on the ultrasound that your needle looks like it's in the vein, but you're not getting a blood, blood flash back. And in that case, you're probably in the wall. So it can be deceptive. It can look like you're in, but you're actually dissecting the wall. And so then what you need to do is just come back a little angle, just slightly, whichever way you're going to move your probe a little to the left. Does the view get better? Does that, does that vein look blacker or a little to the right? Does it look blacker that way? And then whichever way it, you get a slightly better view, less gray, more black, you know, that's the way you need to angle your, your needle. You can come back a little with your needle angle that way and get in until you get blood flow. If you, if you've done that and you really think you're in and you, and there's no blood flow, it is possible that you can have a clot uh, in your needle. And so you're, you're in, but you're not getting blood flow. It's unusual unless you've been going at it for quite a while. Uh, if that's, if you really think that you can pull your needle out, leave your catheter in play, you can advance your catheter. I mean, then pull your needle out and try to flush the catheter um, and see if you can flush the clot out and actually get blood back. All right, let's move on to arterial lines. If you're going to do arterial lines with ultrasound, I think you should always do these in line. And it's the same technique that I just described for peripheral IVs in line. But they're going to be easier than veins because they're a little sturdier and they don't roll quite as much. And you can see them. They're usually The radial artery is usually, on some people at least, on most people, it's pretty robust, easy to identify. And it tends to, along the at least distal portion from the wrist up a little ways, it tends to run pretty straight. So uh, you certainly can do these, and you'll see a lot of people do them in cross-axis, but if you learn to do it well in long-axis, I think you'll find that it's a better technique and you'll be more successful. Without ultrasound, which is usually the way most people are going to approach uh, at least a radial artery that has a, a good pulse, you need to realize that most people, when they miss, miss laterally. So you have the wrist, 
people go in, and this is, has to do with the geometry of the wrist and the fingers. They're not flat. You don't have a flat wrist and flat fingers. And the way the curves play out, you tend to think that the pulse you're feeling is more lateral than it actually is. And so people go in, and they're lateral to the artery. So some techniques to use. You can try different ones and find what works for you. You can feel the pulse and then move to one side or the other until you no longer feel a pulse. So now you know the artery is to the other side of your fingers. So then you move slowly back until you just start to feel a pulse. So now you know it, you're, you're just one side of the artery and then enter with your needle just next to your fingers and probably you're going to have a pretty good estimate of where that artery is. So that's one way. Another way, and probably the most common way, is just to find where you think the pulse is the strongest and then enter there. I would tell you that at least when you're starting out, what you probably want to do is identify where you think the pulse is the strongest and then enter just a half millimeter medial to where you think you should go. And I think you'll find you have more success that way because, again, you tend to estimate that things are a little more lateral than they really are on the wrist. I think you want to enter really at quite a shallow angle, and you'll see a pattern here. I tend to I think that going shallow with pretty much all these lines is really important. And you want to avoid going through and through. Now, you will have some people tell you, and, and you even have some veteran attendings who will tell you that you should always go through and through, that that's the correct technique to place an arterial line, and I couldn't disagree more. If you go through and through, you are putting a hole in the backside of that artery, which can bleed. It can cause that artery later down the road to fistulize with other vessels. If you talk to vascular surgeons, they'll tell you about the people they see. It's long past when we've seen them, so we never know about this, but who come in with these terrible complications, uh, fistulas, thromboses. You don't want to put a hole in the back of the artery if you don't have to. So... To avoid going through and through, enter at a really shallow angle, and then as you go in, you want to do these, what I think of as slow poking movements. So you can, you can advance slowly and steadily, but I think you're more likely to avoid the artery kind of moving out of your way a little if you just advance in small, tiny jerks, little pokes, and then pause in between each one because the blood needs time to come up your catheter. It doesn't come up instantly, especially if it's a slow pulse rate because in between – during diastole, it's not going to come up as much. So little advancement, wait, little advancement, wait. If you are going to go in steep, 30 degrees as opposed to my preference, which is more like 10 or 15 degrees, then as soon as you get blood, flatten out and make sure you still get flow. But again, I recommend going in at a pretty shallow angle. And this means you may have to advance a little further because you're not getting deeper as fast. But the radial artery is usually pretty shallow. If you miss, then you make a small correction one way or the other, come all the way back to the skin, and then angle slightly one way or the other and try again. Again, as I said, don't go through and through. Don't have that be your goal. But if you accidentally go through and through, so if you get blood and then it stops or you look down and there's blood in your chamber but it's not still flowing – now what you can do, since you may have gone through and through, is take out your needle, pull your catheter back slowly until you get pulsatile blood coming out of your catheter, and then slide a wire through, and hopefully that wire will pass down into the artery, and then you can thread your catheter over the wire. If you don't ever get really good pulsatile flow, then it's not worth continuing to jab at it with a wire. Just come all the way out, hold pressure, and try again. If you do, if that happens, if you miss and you had blood flow, what will likely happen is the artery will vasospasm, and you won't be able right away to get in there and have it be able to feel a good pulse and get in the artery right away. So you want to maybe switch to the other arm or hold some pressure for a little while and then try again once you feel a good pulse back or switch to ultrasound, and then you can see if there's a good pulse and good flow in the artery. Once you do get good flow, if you're using an arrow kit, which is the kind of built-in Seldinger technique, it has a wire built in, once you get flow, you want to advance the wire, and then, and this is really key, and a lot of people don't do this, then you want to advance everything, meaning you put your wire in, don't immediately thread your catheter in, thread the whole thing, and people hear this and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, won't I, am I not taking the risk of, of going through the, outs, the other side of the of the?" artery. But remember, you can't because there's a needle 
that's down several inches down the artery. In order to get through the backside of the artery, once that, once that wire has been threaded, you, I may have said needle just before, but I meant wire. So you've thread, you thread the wire in. In order for your needle to go through the backside of the artery, you'd have to shear off your wire, and it won't. It will follow the wire down the artery. So you're, you're very safe in advancing everything, meaning needle, catheter, wire, advance it all a couple of millimeters, and then thread your catheter off the end of the needle, and then take your needle and wire out. And that will save you from losing some arterial lines that you would have lost. If you're using a regular angiocath and with no needle, with no, I'm sorry, with no wire, then what you want to do is once you're in, once you get that blood flow, flatten out, make sure you still have blood flow, then advance everything, meaning needle and catheter, a couple millimeters, and then thread off. And yes, you do have the danger of going through and through because there's now, in this technique, there is no wire. So you want to be really careful to flatten out before you advance. But you can't, you don't want to just immediately thread your catheter without advancing because you can be in that same boat I talked about with IVs where your needle tip can be in, but your catheter is not. All right, let's talk about central lines. So the three main locations for central lines are going to be the internal jugular vein, the subclavian vein, or the femoral vein. Now, the internal jugular is the by far the most commonly used vein. It is pretty safe if you use an ultrasound, and you should always use an ultrasound to place these. You have less risk of a pneumothorax than a subclavian. You have less risk of infection than a femoral, or that's been called into question a little bit. It may, it may not be as, as good in terms of infection risk, and it's certainly not as good as a subclavian. But we tend to think that probably there is some advantage in terms of infection than a femoral line. And a big advantage is it's easy, easier to compress than a subclavian. So in anyone you're worried about bleeding, if you do end up with bleeding, you can compress the IJ very easily, whereas you cannot compress the subclavian easily because it's under the clavicle. A subclavian line is definitely more comfortable for patients. It's not sitting in their neck, but it does have a higher risk of pneumothorax, and it's not compressible. However, it is the safest in terms of infection risk. So the risk of infection is lowest in a subclavian line. And then the femoral, it can be impossible or fairly easy depending on the body habitus. It's very dependent on body habitus. A very obese person with a, with a very large panis can be almost impossible or impossible to place a femoral line. It can interfere with ambulation. It can be uncomfortable. Some units don't want people ambulating with a femoral line in place. There is more infection risk. But on the, on the advantageous side, it can be fast, easy to compress, and it's usually in a predictable location. When placing these for the IJ and the subclavian, you want the patient in, Trendbe in Trendelenburg position to avoid an air embolus in with femoral lines, you do want them to lay flat because it will help get the panis out of your way rather than being sitting up. But if you have a patient who can't lay flat, for example, a patient with increased ICP, you can do a femoral line in the sitting position if you have to. For internal jugular lines, again, always use ultrasound. You do want to turn the head to the opposite side. So if you're doing a right IJ, turn the head just slightly to the left. You don't need to fully rotate it. The patient doesn't have to be turned 90 degrees. You want them just turned slightly. It'll help you get a flatter plane on the neck and sometimes will help rotate that uh, carotid out from under the IJ. Usually, you're going to take your ultrasound and you want to locate the IJ and the carotid, and usually you're going to see that the carotid is medial to the IJ. Sometimes it can be underneath, and that's problematic. So in that case, you can go up and down the neck until you hopefully find a place where they are side to side, or you can have the patients turn their neck a little more or a little less and see if that helps as well. Make sure you know which is which. Make sure your ultrasound left is left and right is right so that you want what you think is, le is the left side of the screen is actually the left side of the patient. You can do that by touching the left one side of the probe and making sure it corresponds to the side of the screen you think it does, and of course by looking where the indicator is. You should be able to compress the IJ and see the pulsations of the carotid. The carotid, of course, as I said, is medial to the IJ, and if you aren't sure for some reason, you can use Doppler color and see the pulsations of the, of the carotid. One mnemonic I learned as an intern that I like is 
you're an intern or you're a newly licensed practitioner and you now are allowed to do lines where maybe before you weren't. So now clearly we can do lines is the mnemonic. Now clearly we can do lines. So N-C-W-C-D-L. Now clearly we can do lines. The N stands for needle. So you're going to, of course, go in with your needle until you get blood back. You're aspirating the whole way. Once you get blood back, you're going to Either if you're using the catheter over the needle technique, you're going to thread your catheter into the vessel, or if you're using a rigid needle, you're going to hold it really steady. And then the C, the clearly, is a column. So I really emphasize that unless you have a TEE probe in place where you're going to be able to see that your wire is entering the right atrium, but aside from that, which is usually just cardiac cases, you really want to hang a column now. It doesn't make sense to get the line in and then hang a column because at that point, if you find you're in the carotid, you're going to have to call a vascular surgeon if you just put a large central line into the carotid. But if all you have in is your small introducer needle and you find you're in the carotid, you can hold pressure and take it out. So the way you do this is you fill a piece of IV tubing with with saline. You hook it up to the end of your needle or catheter. You pull back until you get blood coming up into the into the IV tubing, and then you unscrew your syringe and you watch. And the column of fluid should fall if you're in the vein because that you should have a column that's a good 20 or 30 centimeters. And so unless your CVP is 30, it should fall. And if it shoots out the end, then you're in the artery because a pressure of 120 or whatever the systolic pressure is is going to shoot up and out of that tubing that you have. So that will tell you if it falls easily, then you're in the vein and you can feel good about then advancing your wire, which is the we. So we did now clearly we, the W for the we is the wire. You're going to advance your wire. It should go smoothly. You should not have to bang and push and jab. If it's not going smoothly, something is wrong and you need to come out with your wire. Make sure you still have good blood flow. Usually what will happen if your wire isn't going is you've come out. You've either gone through and through or you've pulled out. So you need to adjust until you get good blood flow. Again, this happens all the time with the rigid needle because your rigid needle, if you don't hold that incredibly still, a small movement forward or back can come out of your vessel. And that's why I like the catheter over the needle technique. Once you thread your catheter into the IJ, you're putting essentially a peripheral IV in the IJ temporarily, and now that's in. If it's in, it's in. You don't have to hold it steady. You don't have to worry about movement. It's in, and then you can thread your wire very easily. I find that at least at Hopkins, where I work now, this is not a commonly used technique. People like the rigid needle, and so I tend to be the one teaching people to try this catheter over the needle. And I, it comes in the kits. It comes in every every central line kit I've ever seen. Comes with both the rigid needle and this usually blue catheter over a needle. So you can choose that one. I would recommend doing that for IJs. So we've done now clearly. We we use the wire. The wires in. Once the wire's in, you're going to take your needle out, and now can, the C is for cut, so you're going to make a small cut at the skin, bigger if you're using a bigger catheter like a cordis, and smaller if you're using a small catheter like a triple lumen, and then do is the D for dilate, so you're going to put your dilator on and dilate the skin and soft tissue a little bit, try not to dilate into the vein, that's not the point, the point is to get down to the vein. And then line, of course, the L is for the line. Then you're going to put the line in. So that's how you're going to approach it. Now, clearly, we can do lines, and that should be a pretty good way to remember it. Key things here are remembering to use that column so you know you're not in an artery, remembering to take out your wire, being really careful to never have the wire disappear into the line. So once you put your line on, you back your wire out until it comes out the end of your line and then grab it and then advance and then take the wire all the way out. You really want to be careful because it happens not all that infrequently that someone is in a, in a tense situation. They're not really being careful and they advance everything. And next thing you know, they don't have the wire anymore and the wire has embolized into the patient. Traditionally, using ultrasound for the IJ is done in cross-section, but if the neck is long enough, you can do this in plane, just as I described with peripheral IVs in plane, 
And it has the advantage of having less through and through puncture of the vein because, again, you're going to see your vein in long axis and your needle in, in long axis, the whole needle, the whole way. Now, some people hear this and they think, but I could never do that because I wouldn't see the carotid. But again, if you scroll with your needle, if you go a little bit left, assuming this is a right IJ, you go a little left, which is medial, you're going to see your carotid in long axis. It'll be beating. And then you move to the right and you'll see your IJ in long axis. And as long as you don't move your probe, you know the IJ is the IJ. So I think it is safe. And I think it's in some ways a preferable technique. The vascular surgeons at UCSF, where I did my residency, would do this technique routinely. A subclavian line is traditionally done blind. You find the bend of the clavicle and go one to two centimeters caudad and one to two centimeters lateral from that point, and then you enter the skin, directing your needle toward just posterior of the sternal notch. You want to hit the clavicle, so go really shallow and hit the clavicle, and then walk your needle, push your whole needle and syringe down so that you are not angling down but actually kind of sliding down underneath the clavicle. And you, then you're going to advance once you get under the clavicle until you get blood. And often it's farther than you think. Often you end up hubbing it before you get blood flow back. You want to be careful not to angle down because you can easily hit lung. And you want to be careful to position, again, as I said before, positioning is key. Position the patient well. So often putting a little bit of a shoulder bump under the shoulder that you're doing. So if you're doing a left subclavian, put a little shoulder bump under their left arm, under their left shoulder, so that their arm hangs down a little bit and opens up that space so that you can get as flat as possible. Again, you want them in Trendelenburg position. You can use an ultrasound. And to do this, you're going to go a little distal. So you're going to kind of slide along to the distal end of the clavicle and put your ultrasound probe in line so it's lined up with the clavicle. And usually what, what will happen is on a skinny person, you can see, you'll be able to find, you, you'll scroll a little bit caudad, and you'll usually be able to see in long axis both the vein and the artery, the subclavian vein and the subclavian artery. You are going to see which one is pulsating, use whatever you need to use in terms of you can use color Doppler to identify the vein and then you can enter in long axis so that you're seeing your vein and your needle the entire way. You're going to end up with a catheter that's a little more distal and so it may not reach quite as far all the way to the atrium but it will still clearly be a central line and because it's a little more distal it can be even more comfortable for patients and it's a nice way to go so this is a technique that you can practice. The femoral approach should ideally be done with ultrasound, uh, and you should be able to see the nerve, artery, vein, and remember the mnemonic, navel, so it goes nerve, most lateral, then artery, then vein, then lymphatics as you move towards the navel, towards the midline. And so you'll see your artery, and then medial to the artery, you'll see your vein. And when you see that, Again, you should see a pulsing artery. You should see a vein that's compressible. Again, this can be very difficult even to, even to find in people who are very obese. So you need to make sure you're doing this and finding the correct vas vasculature. You want to scroll up and down and make sure sometimes you can see more than two vessels, and that can be because you're seeing branches of the artery or vein coming off. And so you want to scroll up and down until you get to a point where you have one good obvious vein that you can enter. Similarly, if you're using ultrasound, you can. this can be very tricky actually to do in long axis just because of the anatomy and the tissue. And so this is one that I usually do do in cross-section. If you're not using ultrasound, let's say it's a code situation and you just need to get a line in quickly, then you can feel that pulse if there is a pulse, depending on whether it's a cardiac arrest. But if there's a pulse, you feel the pulse. Know that the vein is medial to the artery. And then while feeling the pulse, go just medial to that, enter with your needle aspirating the whole way, and see if you get blood flow back. I would use the rigid needle for this, not the catheter over the wire, be over the needle, because uh, it can really get kind of kinked in all that soft tissue. And similarly, with subclavians, I didn't mention I would use the rigid needle because the, the catheter can get kinked under the clavicle. It really helps, again, position, 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 Lie the patient flat if at all possible. If there is a panis, tape it out of the way or have someone hold it out of the way. That can make a big difference. 
and really try to get an optimal field, clean it really well because, again, femoral lines have infection issues. All right, the last thing we're going to talk about is PA catheters, also known as a Swan-Gans catheter. So as most people should know at this point, these are not to be used for routine monitoring. The most common indications for a PA catheter, and it should be in a place and with practitioners who are comfortable managing them and know how to interpret them, are pulmonary hypertension, so either known or suspected pulmonary hypertension where it needs to be monitored during a case. You can directly monitor it with a, with a swan, which is really nice. And the other is trying to differentiate mixed shock states. So if someone's hypotensive postoperatively, the question is, are they really vasodilated? Are they getting septic? Or is this cardiogenic shock? Are they in cardiogenic shock? And obviously getting an echo can help you determine the, whether it's cardiogenic, but if it's mixed and you're not sure, or if you know they have some, some cardiac failure and some sepsis, you can put a swan in and you can figure out what's their cardiac output, meaning how well is their heart working, and what's their systemic vascular resistance, how dilated are they, and that can allow you to tailor your therapy. If their SVR is really high and their cardiac output is really low, then you need an inotrope, not a vasopressor. But in the opposite situation, if their cardiac output is high and their peripheral vascular resistance is low, then you do want a vasopressor, something like norepinephrine or vasopressin. So that can help you figure that out. Contraindications to a PA catheter. So absolute contraindications are right-sided endocarditis or right-sided masses or thrombi because you can really knock those off or, or in, spread an infection. Relative contraindications, severe coagulopathy or thrombocytopenia because it's going to put you more at risk for bleeding into the uh, area that you're entering, including into the pulmonary artery and a left bundle branch block because you can cause a right bundle branch block by placing a pulmonary artery catheter. And if they already have a pre-existing left bundle branch block, you can end up with complete heart block. And then tricuspid regurgitation isn't necessarily a contraindication, but it certainly can make it more difficult to float that swan balloon through the tricuspid valve when there's regurgitant flow coming back. So the way you want to do this, and again, there's a great video from the New England Journal. It'll take you through it. But first, you obviously need an introducer sheath, so a cordis that you're going to place. The best two locations are the right IJ or the left subclavian because they give you the, the straightest shot that can go in with your swan and have your balloon curl the way you want it to curl. The most common is going to be the right IJ. You want to prep and flush all your ports, make sure your transducer works, and make sure your balloon inflates and deflates. Don't forget, before you put the swan into the introducer, into this cordis that's in the patient, you have to put the protective sheath on the swan catheter, which is also colloquially called a swandom. If you don't, you can't get it on once the catheter's in. So you really have to make sure to put that on first. As you're manipulating it, taking it out of the, the box and getting ready, keep it curled. Keep that natural curl because it will help you curl up from in curl in the right eye, in the right ventricle up into the uh, pulmonary artery. When you put it in, you want to have the curl coming facing up and slightly to the left if you're going in the right IJ. And then as you advance, so you're going to go in about 10 to, 15, 10 to 15 centimeters till you're past the end of the cortis and then have your assistant blow up the balloon. You'll say balloon up. You're going to advance and you're going to look at three things, the waveforms on the screen, the pressures on the screen, and the distances that you're advancing on the catheter. So from the right IJ, which again is the most common spot, the distance to the right atrium, it, again, this is average, and the average person is about 15 to 20 centimeters, and then the distance to the right ventricle is about 25 to 30 centimeters, and the distance to the PA is about 35 to 40 centimeters. The pressures you should see, so normal pressures in the right atrium are about 1 to 5 millimeters of mercury. In the right ventricle, 15 to 30 over 1 to 7 in the PA, 15 to 30 over 4 to 12, you have that diastolic step up, and your normal wedge is 4 to 12. So again, these may not be true in your patient if your patient has some pathology, but those are normal values. And then the waveforms to look at. So as you start, you should see a venous tracing, so A, C, and V waves. And then you're going to see an obvious change as you enter the RV somewhere around 25 to 30 centimeters. You'll see a large beating uh, upstroke. Uh, it looks a lot like a, a large arterial line tracing, and you will, that'll be pretty obvious. You'll, it's not subtle when you enter the RV. And then what you're looking for as you, as you go from the, as you advance in the RV trying to get into the PA is you're looking for two things, a diastolic step up. 
So you'll see both on your numbers and your waveform that the diastole, the diastolic pressure will step up and you'll see that instead of a, instead of diastolic filling, which you get in the RV, the RV fills during diastole. And so you get an increase in pressure in diastole. In the PA, you get diastolic runoff. So the, the pulmonary valve is closed during diastole. And so the blood is running off through the pulmonary artery. And so pressure is decreasing. So that's the difference. You should go from a diastolic increase in the RV to a diastolic runoff decrease in pressure in the PA. And when you see those two things, you know you're in the PA. You can advance a couple centimeters and either stop, or if you want to wedge your catheter, advance until you lose your PA waveform and get a, what looks a lot like that venous waveform again. And once you get the wedge, then you want to pull back and deflate your, deflate your balloon and then pull back. You want to be really careful if you are going to wedge because the more distal you get, blowing up that balloon has the risk of potentially causing pulmonary artery rupture, which can be catastrophic and fatal. The most common thing that can go wrong here is that you, it doesn't get in. You either never get into the RV, which means you could have gone down past the heart into the IVC, or you could have curled in the RA. And if that happens, you want to pull back and try again. So have, you, have them take your balloon down, pull back, inflate the balloon again when you're back to about 15 to 20 centimeters and advance again. If you get the RV waveform and can't get into the PA, it's probably curled in the RV. If you have bad tricuspid regurgitation, it may not be possible to get into the PA. But again, pulling back, having the balloon come down, pulling back, inflating the balloon and trying again. It's sometimes it's just a matter of trying enough times. You can try putting the patient's head up. You can try putting their left side up or the right side up. So you can try various manipulations to try to see if you help that, that balloon float up into the PA, but often it's just a matter of doing it enough times until one time it just happens to slip in. If you really can't get it, then you, you may need to send them down to interventional radiology and have them do it under fluoroscopy. All right, that's it for today. Hopefully this is helpful as you go out there and practice your line placement of various kinds. Try some of these techniques, especially the inline technique for when you're using an ultrasound for peripheral IVs or for A-lines or for central lines. Get used to it. Get your hand-eye coordination ready so that you have this technique available when you need it. It's a great technique. As I said, it's my go-to technique. Remember, you can go to the website, acrac.com, leave comments there. Tell us about your techniques for placing lines. Do you do it differently? Have you learned different ways? And leave comments on the show. You can also find the links there to the New England Journal videos that I recommended. And you can sign up for our mailing list and email me at acrac.com. The website, again, is acrac.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, and my email, acrac at acrac.com. That's it for today. We'll see you next time for the ACRAC podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.